Hello, Bookstew viewers and listeners. It's not every day, or actually it's not any day, where I have a guest on the show who I went to nursery school with. Um, this is a very unusual circumstance, and I'm really thrilled to be able to introduce you to one of my childhood friends, Paul Kalb. Good afternoon, Hi, Paul. Good How are you doing? You. I'm doing well, thank you. Good to see you again. So let's uh, talk about uh, the origins of this book, which is called The Mystery Boy and Other Stories. And when we were in high school together, um, we worked on uh, an underground newspaper called Frocks that uh, you were really one of the co-founders of, and I was just a worker. And uh, we got thrown out of school for it. There were court cases for us to be allowed to distribute it. So um, we, but we also uh, served together um, on the literary magazine in school, which was a lot of bad high school poetry, which I'm ashamed to look at now, but we did do it. So um, I feel like we've both been immersed in, in the world of literature somehow, whether it was what we wrote ourselves or what we appreciated in other people. Um, so why don't you tell us about um, how writing became important to you, because you also have a blog, so. Right, right. So as you mentioned, um, I've always been interested in writing, at least as long as I can remember. Uh, so back in you know, elementary school, I liked to write. And you know, when we got into high school, uh, we felt the need to express ourselves. And uh, that's you know, basically the genesis of the underground newspaper frocks that, that we worked on together. Um, and then later on in life, I, I, I became a, a scientist and uh, did some technical writing uh, for, for my job as an environmental scientist. Um, but uh, that didn't, um, that didn't uh, do it for me in terms of uh, that bug to want to write. So I, I eventually started writing uh, for a blog that I, that I published. And uh, that's probably about 15 years in the, in the work, probably as long as you've been doing books too. And uh, I wrote about, uh, or I write about, uh, things that you know are important to me, whether they're uh, a review of a book or a film or uh, what's going on in politics. Um, I just write stuff and, and put it on my blog. And uh, about three years ago, uh, my daughter uh, gave me a Father's Day, Father's Day present, uh, which was a subscription to uh, uh, an online tool called StoryWorth, which is for writers and it helps you you know, get ideas and put stuff on, you know, put stuff down in writing. And then eventually uh, you get to publish a book uh, with your result. And so I started started doing that and, and they gave me ideas for, for stories and none of which really appealed to me. Um, but it got me into the habit of thinking about and, and, and writing down some stories about my life. Um, and at around the same time, I started thinking about my parents have been gone for 20 years or more. And uh, I kind of missed the, the fact that uh, I don't have a lot of stories that, that I remember from them. So I thought, well, maybe I ought to be doing some, you know, putting some stuff down so that both my kids and my grandson uh, will eventually have something that will be a record in terms of who I am and how I grew up. Uh, so a lot of my stories began to focus on, on you know, sort of introspective stuff and, and, and my own life. Um, and eventually, uh, when I finished the book, it, it sort of was a, a memoir. I mean, it didn't, didn't go all the way through my life. It stopped at a certain point, but, but it, 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 it was a contiguous 
a description of things that happened in my life. And um, uh, so I published it uh, through StoryWorth and then uh, shared it with a few friends. And eventually uh, some folks had uh, suggested that I self-publish it. And that's what I did. So that's the book that we're talking about today. So um, with your blog, your blog is basically nonfiction. Um, you also wrote Correct. kind of, well, you wrote a baseball story that was based on fact, but certainly um, had projections and fiction in it, sure. which, sure. and memoir to me, straddles the line between fiction and nonfiction, because a memoir still can't be completely accurate unless you tape recorded every second you were alive. And especially when you hit our age, there's stuff that you forget. And if you don't have your primary sources, like parents, to go back to, it can be even cloudier because you're, you're, you've only got your own perspective unless you're gonna be interviewing people for your memoir. So how do you feel about um, the writing fiction versus writing memoir and did you have a hard time putting things in while probably not being exactly sure that that was what was said at the time? Okay, so the, let me sort of um, take that apart a little bit. Um, I, I, I did uh, write um, at least a draft of uh, an historical novel that you referred to. Uh, it was based on a real life character who was a uh, a major league baseball player who had uh, a cup of coffee in the major league, so to speak. Um, and uh, I just, when I heard about this guy, it just sort of got me thinking, well, what was his life about? And I kind of made up a whole story uh, with regard to this, this particular baseball player. Um, and, uh, and so that was a lot of fun. It was fun thinking about what, what might've happened in this guy's life. Now, switching gears over to the memoir side, I think your point is well taken. Um, Many of the stories that I recount in my book, uh, I, I tell uh, as if I remember them pretty clearly. Not, you know, it's not. I'm not sure whether or not that's because I really remember them or because I've heard stories about them uh, through family folklore. So there's that, you know, sort of strange, you know, divide where you don't really know whether or not it's real memory or whether you've heard it a million times and that's why you remember it. Um, but uh, with regard to the accuracy part, um, I did my best to try and account for the way things happened, uh, you know, really. Um, and I'm sure that some of it's an approximation, <laughs> but I, I decided early on for the, for the, from the standpoint of making a story, uh, it didn't really matter. Uh, so I, I didn't get too hung up on whether or not something was 100% accurate. Um, I did my best and said, okay, this is what I've got. Well, one of the, uh, you know, of course I read the book and I enjoyed it greatly, even the parts that didn't have my name in it. Um, but one thing I noted in the book and that I honestly don't even remember from us hanging out together is that you have an older sister and an older brother because they were so much older than you that they were just not around when we were hanging out. So what I wanted to ask you is, was it almost like growing up as an only child since your siblings were kind of, if not gone, they were on their way to uh, leaving home uh, when you were, you know, when you were 
three, four. What do you think? Well, no, for sure. That's a good point. Um, my brother is nine years older than I am, and my sister is 11 years older than I am. So that's a big gap. Uh, and I do have very strong memories of uh, when they were home. And so I was obviously a pretty young kid at the time. Uh, but each of them had a pretty profound impact on who I am, I think. I, I had a very close relationship with them, and I still do to this day. Um, but as you, as you point out, um, by the time you know, uh, junior high school and certainly high school uh, came around, they were you know, pretty much out, you know, out on their own, uh, off to college and beyond. And so my interactions with them were, were much reduced, and it was pretty much being like, a, like an only child. Good point. Oh. And I, you know, I have an only child and um, it, you know, it sometimes it used to be a source of uh, stress for me that, you know, how could I not provide my child with companionship? And, you know, I used to ask her about it and she would basically be very honest and say, well, what, that would mean I would have to share everything. So, you know, <laughs> I think probably that that's how only children Feel, but um, let's switch a little bit to Long Beach where we grew up because to me Long Beach is is almost the essence of the book at least you know the the through almost the end where we grew up is a very very unique place I almost think it's like Brigadoon you know the town still exists Long Beach New mm -hmm. York but when we grew up there it was like 80% Jewish um, I only knew one person who wasn't Jewish, and we used to go to her house to decorate her Christmas tree every year, which was just so much fun, and, and so, you know, we really looked forward to it. But it also made for a kind of certain political upbringing that was not common to, like, let's say, other towns on Long Island or other towns anywhere. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, um, I do agree that uh, our, our youth in Long Beach was, was somewhat unique. Um, and part of that may be the demographics, but part of it may also be the fact that physically Long Beach is an island. Um, we're set apart from, from, the, from the rest of Long, Long Island a little bit. Um, and we were within yards of the ocean, a short walk to the ocean uh, from anywhere in Long Beach. Uh, my, my particular house was 50 yards from the ocean. Uh, 50 or 200 yards from the ocean, and um, I, you know, for 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 me that was pretty important. Um, of course, there was a boardwalk in Long Beach, and a lot of the social activities um, revolved around that. So I think you can point to a number of things um, about Long Beach that were pretty unique. And interestingly, uh, you know, we both belong to a face group site that's you know for people who grew up in Long Beach around the time that we did, and people always bring up little anecdotes and little stories that, that seem to resonate with everybody um, in a way that seems different uh, than having grown up in other areas. Um, to your point about the, the demographics, uh, I happened to grow up in the end of town, the west end of town, which was somewhat integrated in terms of uh, the working class folks in town and wasn't all Jewish. So from that perspective, uh, some of that was good and some of it was bad. In, in high school years during the Vietnam War, uh, there was a lot of um, uh, different feelings in terms of the war, and I had long hair, and I sort of stood out um, uh, among some of the kids down there and, and wasn't always appreciated. Uh, I, I recall a couple of times where uh, 
people would be riding on the school bus and people would be, you know, lighting my hair on fire and stuff like that. Uh, so it wasn't all great, but um, it was uh, it was different. Well, I think one of the parts I enjoyed the most about the book was um, knowing what you had gone through being really like the only hippie in the West End. Um, and to, but then you looked back to kind of this little boy street gang that was on Ohio Avenue, um, which, and there were some nice pictures of the kids you hung out with. I'm so glad you have that and we'll show that. Um, so there was one story in particular that we all enjoyed and I was hoping you would do a little reading of that for us with the setup of how it all came okay. about. Sure. Uh, so this story is called uh, The New Baby, and I'll read some excerpts from it. Um, it's a story that uh, may seem obvious, but uh, had a little bit of a twist uh, in the end. So uh, here goes. Uh, in the spring of 1956, I'm three and a half years old. And even though we had been there a few years, I was still the new kid on Ohio Avenue. I like to think I actually recall the events that occurred on my own. But since I was pretty young at the time, it's not clear to what extent the memory is genuine or simply the product of hearing the story repeatedly told over the years as part of family folklore, probably some combination in between. Either way, this particular day marked a milestone in my young life, stepping across a threshold into a new phase of my childhood for which there was no turning back. Child psychologists would probably argue that maturation is a gradual process and does not occur in discrete steps. But this felt different. It was not an artificial hallmark moment celebrated with balloons like kindergarten graduation, but rather a much more organic and genuine Eureka experience that feels like the proverbial light bulb being switched on inside your head. And in this particular case, it represented a simultaneous physical and psychological maturation. From my seat at the kitchen table, I hear the doorbell ring and recognize the young raspy voice coming from the porch as my mom answers the door. It's my new friend, Jay, from up the street. Hi, Mrs. Kalb, can Paul come out to play? This was a frequent refrain in those days, part of the ritual where kids called on each other, meaning they actually showed up to see if they could come outside to play the various and sundry street games of the time. No prearranged play dates, it was all ad hoc and spontaneous. If the kid you were calling on was not home or otherwise unavailable, you moved on to see if someone else on the block was free. Oftentimes the group enlarged and several kids showed up together, especially when team games were, were involved. This of course was strikingly different than today's norms where kids are kept on a much tighter leash with prearranged activities and schedules and almost never have an opportunity to roam free. Well, hello there, Jake. Why don't you come inside for a few minutes? And without waiting for his response, my mom pushes the latch and swings the door open. Paul's just finishing up some lunch and then you kids can play. Would you like a snack? Jay was about a year, and a, a year older than me and wasn't the least bit shy. He marched right in to join me and took a seat at the Formica kitchen table as I finished the last of my macaroni with cottage cheese and ketchup. Okay, you're probably thinking the Eureka moment was culinary in nature, having to do with the realization that this was a very crude approximation of pasta with fresh tomato sauce and ricotta topped with some pecorino romano. You're on the right track. But that realization, unfortunately, was several years down the road. After we finished our snack and were leaving the kitchen to head out to, out to play, Jay looked up and at once my world stood still. He noticed a bunch of gleaming glass baby bottles lined up drying in the dish drain. 
And that's when it happened. I should have seen it coming, but was totally unprepared. Mrs. Cowb, I didn't know you had a new baby, he blurted out in genuine surprise. Of course, there was no new baby. Those bottles were all mine. Mothers in the 1950s were discouraged from breastfeeding and feeding babies commercial formula from sterilized bottles was considered healthier. While mature for my age in many respects, I stubbornly clung to the last vestiges of toddlerhood and still hadn't given up the habit of drinking milk from a bottle before nap time. A recent study indicated that despite the fact that the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends babies be encouraged to give up the bottle between 12 and 18 months, up to 22% of children were still using bottles regularly at 24 months. Okay, at three and a half years old, I was an outlier and more like the fifth percentile when it came to bottle weaning. But in retrospect, to their credit, my parents didn't make a fuss about it, figuring I'd give up the habit when I was ready. And as it turned out, it took one sentence from my friend up the street to convince me I was more than ready. My mom managed to cover for me to make made up something about the baby bottles, but the embarrassment was palpable. I managed to suppress my anxiety and spend the rest of the afternoon playing. But when I returned home, I immediately announced I wasn't a baby and would never drink another sip from a bottle again. I went cold turkey, and to this day, I'm proud to say I've never fallen off the wagon. <laughs> I love that story, but I was amazed that you wanted to read because it's still it's still a little like, but um, another really important influence in your life has been music, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because um, you've been playing instruments since elementary school. You also um, have had a very famous cousin. So um, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about your musical background and then tell that story, you don't even have to read it because I just thought of it off the top of my head, of the time that you and Terry were going to a concert and the tickets got left behind because I thought that was a hilarious story, so. Indeed, indeed. So um, I, I grew up uh, very fortunately uh, hearing music all around me. My dad was was a musician himself. Uh, he played saxophone in the in the Borscht Belt uh, when he was young. Um, but more than that, uh, my family appreciated folk music. And uh, from the time I was really a baby until uh, I left the house, there was music going on all the time. Uh, so I, I really had a, a you know, a, a good uh, a learning experience from that perspective. Um, as you mentioned, I also had a, a first cousin, Danny Kalb, who was a pretty successful uh, a guitarist for, uh, at first as a, um, an acoustic um, folk guitarist. And then in 1965, he formed the Blues Project. Uh, and they had some little bit of fame for a few years. Uh, and Danny was a really good guitar player. And uh, was fairly close to Danny. Um, whenever he would visit, he'd bring his guitar along, and it was just really wonderful to be able to hear him play and, and watch him play uh, over the years. Um, the story that you mentioned, uh, uh, my wife Terry and I had tickets, uh, happened to be New Year's Eve uh, in 1972, so it was December 31st, 1971, uh, at um, I'm trying to remember the venue in New York City. It just slipped my mind, but um, the Academy of Music, a, a, maybe. Thank you, thank you. On 14th <laughs> Street, the Academy, the Academy of Music. So it was the band, uh, and we showed up at the concert. And as soon as we got to the door, 
Terry looked in her pocketbook and she couldn't find the tickets. Apparently she had left them in another pocketbook at home. And so there we were uh, having bought these tickets, you know, celebrating New Year's Eve and we were just out of luck. So we went up to the box office, we told them our sad story and they just kind of laughed at us because there were a hundred other people outside wanting to get in, not having tickets and you know, who were we? So, you know, they just thought we were making the story up. Um, but they did say that if the concert started and uh, nobody sat in the seats that we thought we had, Terry seemed to remember where they were, uh, that we could we could we could enter. And so, you know, the band started playing. We could hear through the through the open doors as people were coming and going. Uh, and the first song came, and the second song came, and then after about the third song, they checked and they found that there wasn't anybody in those seats. They let us in, and we were just on cloud nine. And the other piece of the story that was interesting, interesting was that it was New Year's Eve, the band was there, um, they had uh, a brass section with them. Um, by the way, the, uh, they released that album as the Rock of Ages uh, years later. Um, but people were, were thinking, oh, this would be a great time for, for Dylan to show up. Uh, you know, it's New Year's Eve, you know, and people just kind of, kind of wishing it to happen. Uh, New Year's Eve, uh, the, the New Year came and went, um, no Bob Dylan, um, but for their second or third encore, I think it was, uh, Dylan walks out on stage and the place just went nuts. Uh, he sang about four tunes and uh, it was really a, just a tremendous show, just a great show. Well, we might, might have to provide more background on who the band is because there are people yeah. watching who may not know that the band is a band as opposed to just an anonymous <laughs> band. But um, indeed, I also saw them uh, in the city. And, you know, we could probably sit there and reminisce for hours about Woodstock, which uh, we both attended, but I bailed out of early because I couldn't stand the mud. And uh, you had gone on a bike tour and ended up there. Um, but I, I wanted to talk more about childhood and kids because we both have kids, and based on what you, what came out in the Mystery Boy, and what you thought about when you recounted childhood stories, what do you think is the biggest difference in your childhood and the childhood of your kids? Wow, <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, I think well, Long Beach was a was a you know, a, a community that was very close knit and especially, you know, probably the same for you, but, but on the street that I grew up, there were kids playing all the time. And as I mentioned in the story, people would call on each other and you just were always out with friends. Um, and uh, so from a social perspective, um, it was pretty special. And that sort of has gone away, uh, probably even in Long Beach, I would think. Uh, it's just the fact, you know, the, the, the way people are living today in suburbia, uh, people's lives are much more uh, you know, controlled or, or whatever. And, and, and even our kids, um, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of free, free time to roam. So they would, you know, get together with other, other kids, but it would all be prearranged. Um, and so I think that was a big difference in terms of how, how kids grew up uh, in, in our time versus uh, our kids' time. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the, the thing I can think of off the top of my head. I think there are pressures that we put on our kids that our parents did not 
put on us. I don't think our parents' parents, when they were born, decided that they had to go to an Ivy League school or they had to play professional basketball. So I think, you know, we were brought up with the expectation, yes, we would go to college, and that was just, that was a given, even though neither you nor I went to school right out of high school, my, in my case, mostly to just protest the whole thing and also because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think yeah. we were brought up being allowed to not know what we wanted to do. Yes, you know, they wanted us to be doctors and lawyers. And another unique thing for the two of us is that our mothers both worked out of the home, which, you know, not yeah. a lot of moms did at the time. But now I think in addition to you can't be a free range kid and just run around anymore without adult supervision, um, everything, it seems to me that for a lot of kids, everything in their lives is aimed at achieving achievement and achieving future success by the standards of the parents. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for kids to be just kids and discover what they want to do. Yeah, that's true. Uh, although I like to think that uh, my wife and I uh, have, have a fairly um, you know, good attitude or had a fairly good attitude with our kids in terms of letting them decide what they wanted to do um, and support them uh, to whatever extent we could. Um, you know, our kids did go to college right out of high school, which is different than what you and I experienced. Um, but it wasn't, I don't think, because we pressured them. I think that was just what they wanted to do. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know, whether or not that's really that different for our kids. I'm not sure. Well, I think there are financial pressures that didn't exist when we were kids. Because, you know, when you look at the difference, many families could have just one person working. Um, I just, it, I don't know. Maybe it's me and maybe it's the idealism of my past, but I just don't think achieving financial success and, and beyond success, all the way to wealth, um, seemed to be a common goal at the time where now the steps that you have to take to make you successful usually would, you, would be those that would also achieve big financial success as well. And somehow I just, I just don't think that was a factor and I think that's a shame, but there's so many reasons that that happened, you know. There's so many reasons that we became that we became competitive about our kids, that our parents weren't. I mean, I bet our parents weren't sitting around going, "Well, my doctor said she's in the 95th percentile for size of her nose and stuff like that." That I can remember doing with, you know, my friends who had babies. We were always just so worried that. No, that our kids weren't keeping up with each other, or this kid was smarter than our kid, and you know, and gifted and talented, and all that stuff that really wasn't yeah. around when we were kids. Yeah, about the differences um, in terms of expectations for for kids. Um, what what I was thinking about was, uh, you know, my parents didn't really push me that hard in terms of going to college right away, which was nice, um, and I wound up getting a job and learning a trade. And it wasn't until a few years later that I decided that I would go back to college and, and get a degree. Um, 
and pursue a, a you know a career in science. Um, but uh, you can't. I think I think it's hard to do that today. I think that for uh, somebody to make it in the in the career that I that I was in in terms of uh, environmental science. You really have to go to college. You have to get a, a, a you know, postgraduate degree, perhaps even a PhD. Um, and um, I just did it a different way. So I think from that perspective, things are uh, quite a bit different today than they were uh, during, during the time that we grew up. But since we're running out of time and going back to your book, I want to recommend the book to everybody because even if you didn't grow up on a barrier island, and even if you didn't become a scientist, there are great stories in here, especially for the generation after ours, I think, and I'm sure your kids get a lot of pleasure out of, out of the book, for um, what was, a, I would say, a very happy childhood in a, in a, in a great place to grow up, and, um, just some reminiscences that are great, but um, I think your essential uh, intellect and goodness shine through in the book, and I think anyone would enjoy reading it. So I assume it's available on Amazon, right? It is, in fact, Amazon or, or um, uh, Barnes & Noble online. And I also want to say one in closing that I wanted you to read the portion about the mystery boy, but you didn't want to give away too much in the book, and I understand it, but um, readers and listeners, the mystery boy story is one of the fascinating stories in the book. So Paul, I uh, want to thank you so much for uh, reliving our past with me today, and I wish you um, great success with the book. It was, it was a really enjoyable read. Well, thanks, Eileen. I really appreciate that. I, I enjoyed coming on and talking to you about it, um, and I hope people get some pleasure reading it. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, Bookstu viewers and listeners, I promise that Paul will pro well, I promise Paul will be the only person from my past that I'll be bringing on, um, unless the rest of our class of 1970 Long Beach High School writes books, which I really hope they don't, but if they do, I'll review them and I'll have them on books too. So um, watch out for The Mystery Boy and Other Stories by Paul Kalb and have a good night.